0: Part 8, outside morning edition of a recognition of the aforementioned belief in the impossible and nothingness becomes another heroic attempt at establishing contact with reality where I learn to stop hoping and fully embrace misanthropy. Now we must introduce our antagonist. No, it isn't society or the story of the human race. It is Gianova, the star of the hit new series, Caricature of a Demon. Gianova despises and distrusts everything. Gianova desires and believes it deserves full control of everything and everyone in order that its experience of reality be perfect. It acts as though death is not a belittling inevitability for everything that exists. It spends hours, days, years griping on countless frustrations, indignations, scheming to escape or dispel, scheming to conquer or triumph over, to prove that it is the greatest, the most high, the one most deserving of the throne of its petty domain. Its powers of perception are honed narrowly to see reality as a hostile, selfish, disempowering monster, which is actually just its own petty self-hate, its own influence upon the world. Gianova is so rude. Side note. Number five, there is a theory circulating around that the images of aliens, the grays, the big eyes, large heads, long fingers, frail forms, those are actually future projections, prophetic visions of the evolution of the human race. The gray skin from a lack of sunlight, the emphasis on eyes and brains, from our increasing fascination with visual and mental stimulation. And the long fingers for our utilization of technological devices. Obviously the frail forms would be the result of lack of bodily necessity. Genova is so rude and so blind, never adding up the results of its own actions. Oh Gianova. You ugly, motherless freak. You'll never figure it out. Why have you come to this world? Gianova. Dear Mother of Wands, may these pathways resolve their indecisions, may they not return to a dead past but create a present culture that acknowledges what has become. One must be crafty to be one's highest self, every idea must be seen through, there ought to be songs and folklore about doubts and trepidations, harbingers shining light on the difficulties of this day and age. This day and age where nothing is necessary anymore, where one could waste their entire life for eighty years instead of being oneself. This is not so for the spider crawling lithely upon the portable, recording studio, upon the rug, questioning the floral pattern, pondering the rider's toe. The spider does their will. If not, they forfeit life. Is it clear? A repetitive theme because the author teeters on a slops pot, neglecting the Seenothis hillside, leaf after leaf, root after root, bark after bark, untinctured, the author's sense of self, decaying. Gianova Praise Crystal film, brush the heat, ritual union, oh why, the underground, besame mucho. On a cloudy, rainless winter's day, surrounded by air and trees and the soft chatter of tiny migrating birds, Chun is pacing back and forth on young, brave grass that has decided it is time to sprout. Chun is giving another dissertation, walking back and forth. Nils has figured out a way to establish a permanent link between Chun and the two astronauts in the International Space Station because Chun's dissertations have just gotten so good lately which Nils thinks must be a direct result of the broadcasts from the space station. Nils is licking their claws and doing some general maintenance on their orange tabby fur coat while Chun says, Proposal for the proliferation or quasi-resurrection of a pre-technocratical existence with overarching semblance towards sound structural support within a pagan, primitive, pastoral landscape reminiscent of the roots of humanity growing in an acknowledgedly collective soil of consciously cared for wild and commons. What everyone is seeking amounts to nothing more than homeostasis because, for a yearning being, which we all are, homeostasis is the doorway to the realities of our true will, the moment when that autonomy is discovered, actualized, lived, a rare moment where what was once dependence and striving becomes the ambient serenity of calmly knowing where, how, when, why, what and with whom, the vital forces, the vital life forces that our subconscious beings are striving toward are met, naturally falling into place of their own accord and harvested by people who made the ground an altar in preparation for their coming bounty. Somehow the most potent truths are often the most basic, as in, humans living in healthy abundant villages are very happy. We are now beyond primitive, and this means that there are even more ways for creativity to express itself through us. We have the ability to apply our actual needs to this modern context, align ourselves with a reality in which the being essence is no longer encumbered by stress, anxiety, and the distractions of making ends meet. Why isn't this being done more often? The model is quite easy. Go live somewhere with a group of 20 to 30 people. Devote the group to creating self-reliance with the parameters of that place. Feel the joy of liberation, and the magic will find it. Will seek to align itself with it, and new pathways will arrive to satisfy the shift in potentialities that follows. Gianova lurks about in the shadows of the mind. The recesses, it is that feeling of doubt, of confusion, of despair, of the nihilistic banality behind every endeavor, Gianova is jealous of Chun. It wants to be as important as they are, being intertwined with an international space station that is utilizing suggestive subliminal messaging to gently nudge society into a state of reasonable logic. Gianova thinks gotta start somewhere. Feed time, feed the antelope. Gianova wants to blow the whistle on their little scheme. It considers making mission control, aware of the strange power fluctuations taking place on the International Space Station. As it attempts to create this awareness, Niels catches it, and we all slip into a wavy, hypnotic scene change. Stryker wasn't much of anyone, yet fancied himself worthy of a personality and trailing voice. Let's catch up with him as he approaches Jim Marbloney in his office. Jim just played it all by the books, kept it real cool with the sway. They both wore suit and tie, neither worth mentioning. One tie was red, not red like the pink of dawn. Read like a conservative. Carl knew he would never really ascend the rungs of men in business with secretaries in polka dot skirts, so he got to thinking, as any rational person should, about a nice old heist, this being the type of thing he really had going for him. So, super cool, he cruised into Marbloni's office in order to give him his wrap because, well, Jim had the keys to the reels and them sweet old books, like any other gold, secure. We're all gonna do what we're all gonna do to get by, Jim. I, for one, am not much intending on Patsy climbing around this joint very much longer, in fad or out of style. To tell the truth, I'm scooting today, just this very moment. All I need, buddy is in. You know where. I'll just walk away with one, and that's more than a fella could ever need. Just let me in there, Jim. There's no way they'll catch on. Jim said, Carlisle, my boy, you have got no idea what you're up against. Do you really want to feel that sensation of perpetually being bound?" will know immediately what has happened and they will never rest. The moment a book is even in your hands you will be doomed, fated to some monstrosity of a reality. In fact, they are probably already aware of all of this. They have probably been aware since you began walking towards my office door. Carlisle said, I haven't got anything to lose and I am already faded to the worst there is, living in this checkered gray wreck of a society. All of us moping and groping, silently locked in our minds. I want out, I want my feet bare, pina coladas, Jim, nice barefoot dances, and coladas. You're brainwashed, my friend, pure panopticon. They will never know. Jim said, more tense looking, looking around for some kind of heavy bludgeon to maybe use it if it came to it, to talk Carlisle down with a concussion. You are damning me as well, right now, by forcing me into this conversation, by me even responding to you. They know already. I can feel them knowing. I can feel them listening. Through me, through you, they are here. They are tuned in, knowing Carlyle chuckled and shook his head. Listen, Jim, all we gotta do is stop wasting time. All we gotta do is scram. All we gotta do is hightail it out of here before they know what even hit them, and we're free! Well, we will be bound to a journey, but free of this? Jim Marbloni, in his drab navy suit, was torn asunder. Carlisle had him. How did he know? Was it just an assumption that gave him the understanding that Jim had been considering this for years, the simplest way to open the door to the good life, that he held the key? They gave it to him because he had ranked so well in the tests. He had proven to be loyal and mundane, lacking any fight or willpower of his own, without any hint of caprice. And Jim worked hard to make himself seem that way. He knew they were beginning to suspect him. He knew he would have his position altered sometime soon. He was only surprised that they had not done so already. He had held the key the longest of anybody. The key to the old world's library. The books of truth. Sunrise after sunrise. The door right behind his back. Filing his papers transferring confiscated literature to the vaults, placing them in the sorting machine, an entire city block devoted to the thing, with 20 stories down, down into the ground. Why did they bother? Why did they not burn them like the others? To destroy them would be too foolish. It was just to hold them there. For what? No one knew. Years it gnawed at his mind. His dreams were mostly just the pages of old texts floating around, opening and flipping their pages. He could never quite read any of the words, but always he was filled with sensations, as though he understood something—something something he could never quite bring all the way through to life. Surely they had some idea of this. Now here's Carla. Breaking the final thread of resilience, <coughs> unhinging the barrier in Jim's mind that keeps the door closed. Jim, at this moment, figured and said, "Carl, oh, you know, I guess things just happen. They always do eventually. There isn't much more to be said about." It. Alexandria Libraries Incorporated, quite simply contained everything, an exhaustive initiative to, dis- to secure all the physical information in the world in order to perpetuate the yada yada of another dystopian nightmare. In bank-like fashion, everything was vaulted away, never to be touched, books, films, paintings, records, tapes, you know, media. Perhaps they did it because total, t- total annihilation of all and everything would have been too hard on the cognition of society, so instead, as a pacification, it was made to appear immense nice that this one single library was preserving all of the media of antiquity from harm, from degeneration, from the oils of people's grubby fingers, a beautiful relic of the past, tours coming soon, in the near future come admire the primitive entertainment of our idiot ancestors. Jim, his left eye was replaced when he got the job, with the key eye, turned to the retinal keyhole and stared inside. Out of his eye protruded a golden key which found its way into the lock and twisted. The door to the vault A musty aroma poured out of the cool darkness. Jim and Carlyle both experienced a flash of an ancestral memory of reading beneath low light next to a fire, learning something, enjoying the calm narrative of some winding trail, their minds filled with gold briefly. They walked, not too terrified, into the darkness quickly until they came to the first shelf. On it, there were books. Jim reached out. And grabbed the first one his fingers touched they departed quicker than they came back into the office light the book in jim's hand a faded blue hardcover with letters neither of them could understand jim figured there was no sense in picking they were both doomed that much was obvious from the very beginning he handed the book to carlisle as an act of gratitude and vengeance They both shivered as the rushes of extreme kleptomancy passed through their bodies, the deer stealing his own life, bounding away from whatever just rustled the leaves on the ground. Death, of course, come to collect life's taxes. they wore checkered shirts and how they got to be a foot and a half taller than everybody else was always a source of much musing at social gatherings. Either way, the guards of the status quo were a formidable foe, to say the least. From seven to eight feet tall, with long, greasy hair, everyone suspected them to be genetic hybrids of vicious mobsters and the largest athletes. Hyper androgynous, their checkered shirts always tucked into their black denim pants. All of this served to accentuate their ability to maintain the status quo. They never really spoke nor had much to say. They were only to appear and maintain despotic determinism. Three of them charged in the door of Jim Marbloni's office where he swore to protect the sacred texts from the world. Everyone in the room was now grinning. For some reason that Carlisle could not understand at all. Perhaps it was out of bitterness from the betrayal. The three guards of the status quo all descended on Jim immediately. He stammered and tried in vain to speak up to defend himself. His teeth were still carrying fragments of words as they scattered themselves about the floor. Carlisle, shocked at Jim's demise versus his own, stands clutching the book that Jim had given him only a few moments ago. To be alive still, to have any amount of existence left, this point of fact illuminated him. He felt as though the old god had been reborn in order to hold vigil for him through this endeavor. Quickly it was clear that this was never about pina coladas. While the guards of the status quo finished doing irreparable damage to Jim, Carlyle burst for the door and immediately began running down the hall. The checkers, all immediately reaching their strange long arms after him, He knocked away a fist with his fist. He ducked as they grabbed for his head. Suddenly, in this insanity of death and escape, a quiver of arrows appeared in his eye. He began flinging them into the checkered chests, arrow after arrow, drawing blood, staggering the relentless pursuers. Now for a quick commercial break. The Proposal An appeal for a harmonious dreamland in response to the impending eco-cultural alteration of society and its active ethic. There is a calm excitement around in regards to the potential creation of an incredible situation that would be beneficial to every need and inspiration of a particular niche of people, some of whom we know and others we are yet to meet. The undertone of which we are all aware is very important to acknowledge. The idea exists in all of us, a terrifying heaven within reach, from whence could come an actualization of such high and vital reverence. Reality deserves it. The truest dreams that you have really are important. The dreamland What happens there is every great idea. What happens there is a responsible, prepared community that has experienced the challenges, successes, failures, enhancements, pitfalls, and on and on of life in the wilderness, in a place of a place becoming, changing, a place that is primarily peopled by plants and trees and soil and bugs and fungus and lichen and flowing water and wind and seasons and gardens. We all know what heaven on earth could be. A successful realization of our collective visions cooperating healthily. Who would benefit? What could be created? We will die. Shall we not then live fully? The dreamland is large. Without authority. Free. Responsible enough. Fluidly functioning. Weaving through all the narrow gaps. Well enough. Enough. Goal-oriented, averting the mundane, and dilapidating pitfalls, harmonious, and thriving. Dreamland has a centralized hub house with an orchard farm, workshop, music space, library, and kitchen. Everyone's personal, fully autonomous zone will be a spoke of this wheel, which work together to hold true the revolutions. Happy people, eat alone, throw a potluck, Do you buy it? Do you cast a spell? Do you squat in secret or in resistance? 100 acres of $400,000. A mortgage is $2,000 per month after the down payment. How do you pay for it? Taco truck, farm loans, community-supported agriculture, milling lumber, selling art and medicine, mushrooms and sauerkraut, write books, make films, fix bicycles, sell trees, sell hides. Money is a nuisance, and there's just got to be uplifting ways to create it. Family support. The Dreamland is not escapism, it is refuge. It is ground zero. It is the re-emergence of the village. It would enable lofty, lofty visions. All the Dreamland asks is that you envision what you would owe the world if you were living in a state of bliss with nothing blocking the way except for the way's challenges. And now, back to today's featured program. Blood dripping from the bulls, the hallway calming, he flung more arrows. Carlisle? How was it possible? Was he actually to survive this? Was he actually going to survive this? His newfound power became a frenzy. He felt as though the guards of the status quo would yield to him as a reward for his audacity. But presently, Carlisle woke up to the danger he was in. His hair, followed by a skull, smashed into his nose, and the entire body of his accomplished Jim Marbloni stared up at him, toothless, saying, Run. The clarity then kept him moving towards the world outside of this place with his holy treasure. Haunted by Jim's smashed face, and the way the checkered guards kept advancing, their legs so dreadfully long. Reaching out, their chests all full of arrows, full of arrows that came from where? The beast's tongues licking his calf muscles. He ran past the reception desks, out the glass double doors, and into the open street. Light poured into his face. Everyone was aware he existed, his treasure a foreign mystery to everyone looking at him two blue rectangles which concealed paper, the stuff sandwiches come wrapped in. Why was he in such a hurry, carrying a folder of sandwich papers? They all stared and wondered. The checkers did not leave the building. Either they had died or something stopped them. Carlisle could not discern. He just kept moving quickly, but not running not wanting to draw any more attention, which was impossible because everyone was paying attention to them. Where did the arrows come from? Nothing was clear. None of it mattered. All that was left was to find some semblance of safety. He expected to be hunted remorselessly. It was strange that he was able to do what he was doing at all. He held one of the most taboo amulets possible. He had no dies to cast for guidance. How could he make the book hold its value? At first he just thought of pawning whatever he got out of the vault on the dark market to some antiquities dealer. Now he realized he had the revolution beneath his arm. He could of course try to blackmail Alexandria Library, Incorporated, but that would never work. No. He needed to understand the power he had and how to properly wield it. He began to spec that this was never his own idea. He felt diaphanous, as though he were so electrified by exhilaration that his being were not material in full any longer. He slowed down his haste in order to decrease suspicion. He was not being followed? How long had he been walking? Where was he going? He found out then that he was hungry paper in the book reminding him of sandwiches. He tucked it deep beneath his arm and tried to walk as though he were just another everyone else. As he passed through an alleyway, a door chime sounded, and a checker came out with a bag of food for the compost bins. The checkers did all of the menial labor these days. Carlisle waited for the checker to finish and then walked over to the bins. It was summertime and the bins were writhing with maggots. The food the checker had just thrown in there sank quickly into a sea of writhing fly babies. It was a ghastly scene. Carlisle moved on. He had been walking for some time now, hungry, confused, and fugitive. Something finally snapped. A shrill bird sang from nowhere, chortling, and Carlisle remembered. He knew what to do, and knew within the book was the power to do it. All he would need was a bit of support from a few people, as at their wit's end as he was, which, luckily, amounted to nearly everybody. Thinking thus, he ran into the middle of the street, halting traffic. The sun had begun to set, and the sky was pinkish-orange. He jumped onto the hood of a red convertible and began to shout, "'People, behold, it is this, "'that which has been hidden from us.' This mystery of which the Old Ones left for us. The thing we hint at in the dark when we feel controversial. This sandwich wrapper which used to teach us and entertain us. I have one, extracted from the vault. I pulled it from its exile to bring it forth. Forth to you, to all of you. Traffic had quickly piled up, as well as staring passers-by. The honking horns forced him to summon a mighty strength to be heard. He felt that it was not his voice that came out, but that of the mighty Liberator, The people would often whisper about when they felt truly safe. We must unite and decipher this. Parade with me, my new friends. We now have the power they have hidden, the power they were too afraid to destroy. We have one of the mighty mysteries in our grasp. The crowd seemed intrigued, as Carlyle did his best to emulate the mass-gathering speech style of the politicals. One after another, the people started to make sense of the ranting and began to smile. The honking ceased when the, when the driver saw that Carlisle was not being ripped to shreds, but was in fact being listened to. The driver of the red convertible told Carlisle to stand in the back seat and keep talking. He looked down and their eyes met. She said, my name is Martha. It is nice to meet you, Carlisle. Thank you for your sacrifice. I will guide you through this. For a flashing second, Carlisle envisioned himself in a cage being driven through the city. His teeth were shattered his limbs disjointed. He was guffawing and clutching the book with its pages all torn up, sucking on some of the paper. It was a terrible vision contrasted starkly with his current reality. He shook it out of his mind and looked again at Martha, who suddenly bore an uncanny resemblance to one of the three keepers of the quo from his escape in the office. Flustered now, felt the car slowly move forward and he again shook away the strange sensation. He rolled in the back waving the book on high for the people to bear witness and through the streets they rolled. Well there you go. <laughs> that, in, that that concludes it. does it